Good morning, Doxa Church. My name is David. I was uh, one of the parents whose kid did not make it to the stage. Uh, he ran, uh, I don't know, whatever was happening there. So anyway, that was mine. In case you're wondering what, uh, what parent couldn't control their kid, that was mine. So my name is David, one of the guys on staff, and we're, we're jumping into like really kind of a, a two-week kind of mini serious thing on Christmas. And so next week, Rob's teaching on Isaiah 9, and we were trying to figure out what we wanted to teach on this week, and we landed on the beginning of the Gospel of John. And the reason we kind of landed on this is because, you know, Christmas is a familiar story to a lot of us, right? If you've been going to church for a long time, or even if you just grew up in America, right, we kind of have like, like the, the Bible is just part of kind of our national identity, right? Like we, we see nativity scenes all around. It's something that is familiar to us. And so the beginning of the Gospel of John is basically John's way of trying to like tell us the Christmas story in a different kind of way. And so if you got a Bible, go to, go to John, John 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And this is kind of how he tells the story. But before we, we read, I want to tell you a story of a, a backpacking trip that I did um, a few years back. So I, me and my brother and my dad, my brother was getting married, and so we were kind of doing like one last guy's trip before this happened, and we went to Zion National Park. Anyone ever been there? A few people? Yeah, it's a super cool place. And so there's this area in Zion National Park called the Narrows, and the Narrows is the, the deepest, longest slot canyon in the world. And so basically what it is is you have this river that kind of runs, and just like over time, like for a really, really long time, it just kind of bored its way down into the earth. And so you have this, you know, river that's anywhere from like ankle deep to kind of like chest or like maybe a little bit over your head at some points deep. And then you have walls about 20 feet on either side of you. Sometimes it's as narrow as like 12 feet wide. And they go up like a thousand feet straight up. And this thing just kind of winds. And so we ended up doing like the kind of top to bottom Zion Narrows. And so we basically, have, a bus drops us off at the top and we kind of wade with our backpacks over a few days kind of down this winding river. And it, it was one of the uh, coolest places I've ever been in my life. Like without question. Like the, um, the, the, the stuff that is, exists there exists in this like super unique ecosystem. And so like you, you turn a corner and you're looking down this like next part of the canyon and it's like totally different than what you just saw. And so some of it was like spectacular. I mean, you have like water that's like running off the side of this and we came like in perfect fall conditions, right? So like all the leaves are changing. I mean, it's just like unbelievably stunning. And so I, at the beginning of this, I had my camera out and a tripod, you know, my, my dad is really slow anyway. So I have plenty of time to take photos, you know, and so I'm taking all these photos and stuff like this. And what that happened was really interesting. The first few miles of this, I mean, we couldn't stop talking about it. We were like, this is one of the most amazing places we've ever been. It is beautiful beyond the ability to kind of explain in a photograph or in, you know, just me telling you the story. But that was like the first few miles. And what happened was um, every corner you turned looked different. And it was like arguably better than the corner before that as you're kind of winding your way through this. But something happened where it started to become like normal, you know? And so I remember like four or five miles in, like, you know, the camera's in the backpack and you're just kind of trudging along and things that like when you first saw the first tree that was like perfect colors, you were like, this is amazing. But that now you've passed like a couple thousand of them, right? And it starts to lose its grandeur. It starts to become really familiar. And so I remember like having this moment, I was standing and I was like looking at this and I'm like, well, this is one of the most amazing scenes I've ever seen. But because this has become familiar to me, I don't have like the capacity to like take in this beauty anymore. Like I'm kind of like capped out or it's like become so familiar. I can't, I can't behold it in the way that I 
should. Like if I was standing here next to myself before I'd done the first four miles of this, like the version of me would be like, this is amazing. But the version of me that now it's familiar to is like, I don't know, it's, it's pretty normal now. This is just like what our trip is like. And we're about to celebrate Christmas. And I, I actually think Christmas is like this for a lot of us. I think that Christmas is a really interesting holiday because, it, honestly, it's so familiar. And it's interesting. I think the familiarity of Christmas is actually what attracts us to it, right? It's like next to stranger things, like Christmas is like the biggest nostalgia play that we have in our lives, right? It's just like something about it just like reminds you of like the old times, the good old days. And if you live in America, you can't even like escape it. Like even if you're one of those people that kind of like wants to escape it, like you can't, right? Like the day after Thanksgiving, like Christmas trees go up everywhere, lights are on, music is playing, whether you want it to or not. Or if you go to the Warren's house, it's the week before Christmas, right? It's like getting going right away. And the Christians are, are interesting because I think that we are, um, we don't just like participate in the Christmas season in America, but we're like vigilant about kind of like holding the line on what Christmas is supposed to be about, right? There's like, we talk about like a war on Christmas, right? And it's like, there's like, wow, we want to fight hard to make sure people remember what Christmas is really all about, right? It's not about this jolly fat man and his sleigh. It's not about Santa Claus. It's about the birth of Jesus. And we're like serious about that. We're like, we got to hold the line on this. And that's totally true. Like, that's, a, that's true. That's what Christmas is about. But here's the problem. I think what a lot of Christians do is we basically replace this like sentimental and familiar story of Santa with an equally sentimental and familiar story about a baby born in a stable in Bethlehem. And we sort of like replace the story of a dude coming down our chimney with this story of a manger, angels, shepherds, wise men, Mary Joseph, the star over Bethlehem. But it's equally sentimental and it's equally nostalgic because it's familiar. You know, and I think that's where the way a lot of us come into this Christmas season. Now, that's the way I come into the Christmas season. Just all my cards on the table. This is like where I'm at most years. We've seen it. We've heard it. It's familiar. But the problem with this, I think, is that if the Christmas story becomes sentimental and if it becomes familiar, I think it means we've like not understood it at all. Or even maybe like we did understand it at once. Like with those people that are like, man, I, like when I first saw this, it was amazing. But now something has happened to us where it's become familiar and normal. And it's like maybe we understood it at one point. But we've forgotten what the story is actually about. We don't understand it anymore. The story of Christmas, and here's, here's why I think that. Um, I think it's impossible for the story of Christmas to be familiar. Like, I, I think, like, the, the nature of it is such that, like, it can't be a familiar story. It's impossible because it's, like, the most unfamiliar and unbelievable story that's ever been told. Like, I, and I think this is what the beginning of John is trying to help us see as he kind of tells his version of the Christmas story. Is he's saying, you have to understand, like, I know that you have familiarity with this, but this is the most staggering, world-changing, incomprehensible truth that's ever been presented to the world. And when you understand it rightly, right, when you kind of strip off the things that feel familiar about it, like where it happened in Bethlehem, and there's the manger, and there's, there's animals, right, like all the kind of familiar stuff that we have on in our nativity scenes, you strip that away and you just say, what is actually happening here? And John is basically saying, hey, the story of Christmas is this thing that actually confounds our thinking. It overturns all of our philosophies. It is the grand paradox and the grand mystery behind all others and so when John begins his gospel, he tells the same story that the others do, but he intentionally tells it in a different way. 
And what he wants to do is tear away everything that's familiar, and he wants to get us to kind of stare face to face with the truth that took him three years with Jesus to come to terms with. So it took John three years with Jesus to come to terms with who Jesus really is, but he wants to tell you this and force you to stare at it in the first three verses of his gospel. The Jesus of Nazareth, the baby lying in the manger, was God. And I think even as we say that, right, there's like familiarity there. We're like, yeah, totally. But that is a crazy thing, right? The Christmas story is a story of the birth of Jesus, and John wants to make sure that we actually understand it. And not just understand it, but that we would actually so understand it that we would actually be able to behold it. And so this is what he does. He says, I want want to show you three things. The story of Christmas is really the story of the Word of God becoming flesh. It's the story of the light of God actually dawning and coming into our world of darkness, and it's the story of the Lamb of God coming to take away the sins of the world. And so I want to I wanna read the beginning of John with you both, with, all, with you all, and we're going we're gonna to talk about it. With you both. I'm glad there's more than two people here. All right. <laughs> That'd be really funny. Okay. I would get off the stage and we'd come have a conversation. Okay. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all may believe through him. Now, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Now, he's talking about the John the Baptist. So this is John the Apostle, right? John the Baptist. Now the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known. This is an amazing passage. I don't know if you feel about this about the beginning of John, but I've always felt this because it's like John is, is saying something in a different kind of way, right? It's not just narrative in the way that the others are. It, it's poetic. It, it's huge. It's grand. He's like saying, I want to I change the way you think about this. And the first thing he wants to help us think about Christmas is Christmas is the story of the Word of God being made flesh. And it's really interesting because John, who's writing this, the apostle John, is Jesus' closest earthly friend. Like he always refers to himself, right, like the, the apostle that Jesus 
loved, right? And so there's like really close intimacy. And, and John like knows stuff about Jesus. Like he lived with him for years and years, like his closest relational person here on earth. And so he could have started the story anywhere. Like he could have given us all this like deep dive stuff of like, oh man, let me tell you the story that no one else has heard because I'm like his boy. Like I know him. I know these stories. And he could have started there and he doesn't. He doesn't start with some story he has of Jesus. He doesn't even start back in Bethlehem where all the others start, but he actually starts by taking us to the very first words of the Bible. Right? He quotes Genesis 1. It says, in the beginning, and he's saying, I, I want to go back to the eternal beginning. This is where my story of Jesus starts. Before space, before time, where God and God alone exists. And he says, in the beginning was the word. Now the word, if you've kind of been to church for a while, you kind of know this is like the Greek word logos. And it's, it's a word that's kind of distant to us, but everyone in, who's reading this would know what this word meant. It was like a really normal, common phrase that represented this, this idea that everyone understood. It's this idea that there's this abstract, kind of unknowable divine mind that exists here. And it's like, it's the thing that's behind like the tangible and knowable, like the created world that we can interact with and see and understand. And it's kind of ordered and makes some sense. And yeah, there's some chaos to it, but it kind of makes sense. Like things happen a certain way. And so the Logos is like this kind of abstract, distant God that's out here. And we have the ability to know this part of the world. And so he says, in the beginning was the Logos, the word. And this is what he says. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's interesting. And he says, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we're going to spend just a couple minutes just unpacking this, because this is kind of confusing language. Like, we can all recognize, oh, this is kind of clunky. <laughs> like, why is he saying it this way? Well, he's saying it this way because he's trying to, like, unfold for us some really important things about this the word, because he's going to say something later in verse 14 that, hap that the word does, that you need to know this in order for that to make sense. Okay, so what does he say? The first thing he's saying is that the word is eternal. Right, so he's saying in the beginning was the word. He's saying before anything was created, he was. But he's also saying the word is a personality, right? The word was with God. So like the, the power, the, the word that fulfills God's purposes is also distinct from God in some way. He's a distinct personal being, but at the same time, the word is deity. It says the word was with God, but the word was God. And so despite being a, a distinct person, the word was never created by God because he is God. And also we see that the word is the creator. It says all things were created through him. So there, there's no part of the created universe that wasn't made from him, right? He doesn't just say, hey, uh, he is the creator. He says, not only is he the creator, but there's not a single thing that was made that wasn't made through him. And so everything flows from him. And so this is who John is talking about when he says the word. He, he's saying the eternal, personal, creating word of God, God himself and the reason he spends time explaining all this is because verse 14 is supposed to knock us out of our seats. It's supposed to be something that can never be familiar to us. Because verse 14, he says this, and the word, the eternal, personal, creating word of God, God himself, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. 
he's saying something that does not make any sense at all. It's, par- it's a paradox. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, the word can't become flesh. It's different. It's, they're like total, like, opposite things. And so he's saying, but the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and not only did that happen, we've actually seen his glory. The abstract, unknowable, divine glory that's out there that we can kind of sometimes get glimpses of in our world, but we can't see it or touch it or know it. He's like, we've actually seen his glory. What he's saying is that the baby that's lying in the manger was none other than the eternal, never-changing God of creation. When people come to Christianity, there's a lot of things that, that cause us problems for people in the Bible. Like, there's a lot of things. We can just recognize that. There are some things in this book that are difficult to grasp and base our life off of, right? And so people look at Jesus' miracles, like feeding 5,000 people from, a, you know, a couple loaves of bread and a few fish. Like, we look at that, and like, that's that's hard to believe, right? You look at things like Jesus walking on water and are like, that is hard to believe. Or Jesus' resurrection. These are things in the Bible that we say, man, this is, this is like hard for us as modern people to kind of stomach and just like it's, it's hard for it to be palatable. But that's not where the deepest mystery lies. You see, the mystery from the very front of the Bible to the very back is this claim that Jesus is fully and completely God. Like, this is the central thing that separates Christians from, from Muslims. Disclaim. Jesus is not a prophet. He's not a good teacher. He's not a great person. He's not someone who came to show us the path to divinity. He's actually divine himself. He is God. Not a separate God. He is God. <laughs> and it's a paradox. Like, a, a paradox is something that, like, two things on their face do not make sense together at all right? Like that's what a paradox is. And it actually is that. Like the word became flesh is something that on its face is like, that can't happen. It doesn't make any sense. But the whole story of the Bible is saying, yes, it is a paradox, but it's actually the very center of the message of Christianity. And every single thing in the universe flows from that mystery. And listen, it is hard to take. It, It is hard to agree with. It is hard to like have faith that that's true. But if this is true, then every single part of Jesus' story actually makes sense. Every single part of it. Like, like it makes sense. If, if Jesus was the one who actually spoke the universe into existence, it makes sense that he can stand up in the middle of a storm and tell the winds and the waves to stop and they obey him. Because they came into existence from the same voice. If Jesus is the author of life, then it would make sense that when you kill him, he doesn't stay dead, but he rises back to life. Because he is the author of life himself. And John is saying, listen, this is who Jesus is. And I know that when there's things that are like impossible to understand or things that you can't even begin to to grab the edges of because they're so weighty and glorious, I know that things like that are easier to just push aside in your mind and cling on to small details that are sentimental and nostalgic, and that's the thing you think about. But he's saying, I want you to get rid of that and actually try to just try to put your hands around this weighty thing that I'm saying. That the story of Christmas is the story of the Word of God being made flesh. And that can't be familiar. Because <laughs> it's impossible. But the story of the Bible is saying, but that is what happened. And then look at what he says in verse 4. He says, in him was life. 
And the life was the light of men. And he says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then look at verse 9. He says the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And so he's saying I, I want you to see that the story of Christmas is also the story of the light of God dawning into our dark world. Now this is where we're actually going to go next week is Isaiah 9. But I want to just read this really quickly for us this morning. This is Isaiah 9, 9 two. It says the people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And then in verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And what's so amazing about this is this is not written like after the, this is written 700 years earlier. It's this prophecy about how Jesus is going to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. And it says that there's people who walked in darkness who have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And there's this idea that I think is really prevalent in this room and is prevalent in our country and really the world is this idea that humans have within ourselves the capacity or even like the ability to like bring light and life into the world. And that if we truly uh, love one another, as best to our ability, if we do good to one another, then the darkness of this world can be vanquished. And I, and I think if we're honest, this is like in the air we breathe around Christmas time, right? It's like that, this is like the call of Christmas is to like for just a little, at least a month, right? Like manifest what is best in us into the world that we can try to make this dark world a little bit brighter. And if we try hard enough and if we come together in unity and love, we can actually accomplish that to some degree. But what's so amazing is the actual story of Christmas in the Bible is actually saying the exact opposite of this. Right? It, it isn't saying that if we bring together all of our candles of humanity, we can kind of bring about the sunrise of goodness and beauty into our dark world. It's actually saying really specifically, in this world full of human beings, all the candles have already gone out. It's saying that the world is actually a world full of darkness. Now, if you know the story of the Bible, this is how God created it, right? It's like this spark, this thing that God put inside of us, the image of God. But because sin is now part of our world, it's, it's become a world of darkness. And it says a land of deep darkness. So not minor, but it's like significant. And what this means is that we're part of this world of darkness is that we actually can't light our own path. We actually can't see our own way. And it means even if we come together, we like, get, okay, we're going to all come together and unify and we're going to try to manifest this light into the world. It means that no matter how much you come together, darkness only creates more darkness. And if you think of it spiritually, it's just really simply saying, hey, we actually can't get to heaven because none of us know the way. Like we don't have that light so that we can light our own path because no one can see the path. And so the story of Christmas is Jesus comes to us as the light and life of God because without him, we are actually completely dead and blind in our sins, is what the Bible would say. And that the light of God actually came to shine into our darkness because we don't have enough light within ourselves to see. And so this is what he says in verse 10. He says, he was in the world, like Jesus came into the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And it says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, right? There's this kind of spiritual blindness that they have, but it says in verse 12, to, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become 
children of God. So like become, like that language is important, right? Christmas is like not just like an example for all of us to manifest something truer and greater than what we're currently manifesting in our lives. Christmas is actually the story of something happening so that we can actually become something different than we naturally are. And so this paradox that sits at the center of Christianity, it's saying something really specific about us. And we have to know this because every single message in our culture about Christmas is saying the exact opposite about humanity. The Bible is saying, hey, actually, we don't have what it takes. We don't. And even if we wanted to find God or manifest the light of God into the world, we can't. Because if all of us had our own internal light to kind of guide our way to goodness and life and God himself, then the light of the world wouldn't have left heaven to come to earth. But he did. And that's the message of Christmas, is that actually the light of God has come into our world of darkness. And this is what 2 Corinthians 4 says. It says, for God, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, right? All the way back to Genesis 1, like let light shine out of darkness, the creator God. He has now shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then John says it this way in verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God. Like, we, we are in this world of darkness. Like, we can't see him. He's separated from us. But the only God who was at the Father's side, Jesus has made him known. It's this new thing that's happened. And one of the reasons the Bible speaks in images and metaphors so often is because I think it's trying to help us understand that the, the things that happen in the Bible are actually, like, affect, they affect you and your story. And so it uses this like metaphor of like light and darkness because no matter who you are, like you can apply that to your life. Because every one of us at like some degree, like we feel that about our story. Like we feel like I understand that there's parts of my story that feel like they are covered in darkness, right? You might be here this morning and you might feel like God has actually abandoned you and this world. And surely if there's a God of love, he wouldn't have created a world like this or designed my story like this because my story feels like there is a thick black cloud that covers almost every moment of it. You might be in here and you feel that way. But the message of Christmas is actually that the sunrise of God has started. It started and actually a great light has dawned on the darkness of this world. And yeah, no one has seen God, but the God who actually exists, Jesus Christ has made him known. And so the story of Christmas is actually you don't have this thing in you that you can just fan into flame to become somebody different. But Jesus Christ has actually come from heaven to earth so that you could actually know God. Not know him like a small flicker of flame, but know him like the bright shining sunrise. It's come to us. And I think really specifically it's come to you. And so the word became flesh and he's saying, man, the light of God has come into this world, but why? For what purpose? And this is the last thing John wants to talk about. And, and it's the reason that he starts talking about John the Baptist. Did, did that feel weird to any of you? <laughs> like he's like, the, in the beginning was the word. And then he's like, and then there was this guy named John. And you're like, seems like a pretty lofty thing to all of a sudden just insert this dude who roamed around the wilderness in camel's hair eating locusts and honey. Like, why are you bringing him into the story? Well, the reason he brings John into the story is because John is a witness about the light. He says that's why he came into the world. Like, God brought John into the world to be a witness about the light. And so the reason he brings in John is because his witness 
about who Jesus is is actually the climax of the theology of Jesus Christ in the beginning chapter of John. And this is what he says in verse 29. This is why he introduces John, because John says something. He's like, you have to hear what John says, because this will shape the way you understand Christmas. Verse 29, the next day, this is John, he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is John like standing around a whole group of people and Jesus comes and he's like pointing as a witness and saying, this is who Jesus really is. And so John's witness is that the word of God was made flesh, that the light of God was coming into the world and he was coming as a lamb. And this lamb would take away the sins of the world. You see, John is worth a group of very large people, a group, not a very large people, a large group of people. I don't know if they were large. They might have been. The Bible doesn't tell us that. And there comes to them like this, like most ordinary looking dude. Like he, he, is, he is a carpenter from Nazareth, this backwater town from the middle of nowhere. He had poor parents and someone would have looked on him and this would have been a very, very, very familiar person. And as he walks up, no one sees him. No one is stunned. No one is like taking notice. It's just a guy who looks extremely normal. And John the Baptist says, behold. Like, do you, do you, do you know what you're looking at? Do you see who this is? Do you see the one who's walking towards us? Do you know what's beyond the familiar? Do you know the truth of what's actually happening in this moment? And it's like now John is taking that statement, John the apostle, and saying, hey, you Christian, do you know what's actually happening in this story of this baby lying in a manger? He's the word of God made flesh. He's the great light of God dawning on our world, and he is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Behold. Behold. Like, that's what you shout to a world in darkness. That's what you shout to people who are asleep. This is actually what you shout into a room when the king is about to enter, and what's true is you cannot behold something that's familiar. You can't. You can look at something that's familiar. You can like have ideas of things that are familiar, but you can't behold something that's familiar. You can't marvel at it. You can't jump to your feet in fear and wonder of something that feels normal and common. And yet when this carpenter walks up to John the Baptist, it's exactly what he tells everyone to do. He's like, behold him. Adore him. Worship him. Look at this one. Do you know who this is? When you see the nativity scene, okay, just like you're driving down whatever, some street in Madison, and you see a house, you know, of someone who's like, they're like, whatever, you know, there's like the house that has like the Santa blow up on their roof, right? And then next door, there's someone who's like, I'll show you. And they have this like giant nativity scene, you know, like in the front yard. Like when you walk past that, or you drive past that, and you just, you see it, this baby lying in the manger, do you stop and behold him, or has that become familiar and normal and commonplace? I know it has for me. Like, I work for a church. <laughs> like, I, I think about these things often. They're a normal part of my life, and I think that what can happen sometimes is things that are actually the most bright and beautiful in our lives 
because we are still creatures who are marked by sin and we live in a world where beauty fades, sometimes the things that actually should shock us and cause us to stand at attention and just blind us with their glory, sometimes those things are things that we've actually pushed aside and just clung to these like small details that feel nostalgic and sentimental so that we can handle it. We live in a world where beauty fades and even the most beautiful things in the world lose our attention after time. And even the most incredible stories feel commonplace after we've heard them enough times. And I think that this is true of Christmas, right? It's like a page from a book we've read over and over. It's like a movie that we've heard so many times we can like quote it in the background when it's playing. And so John, he starts his story of Christmas by tearing open the curtain. And he wants to rip away everything that feels familiar about this. And he's saying, no, I want you to just stop and stare at what's actually happening. Take that truth claim of the Bible and just stare at it. Don't get distracted with the sentimental details that you've come to cling to. Get rid of that and just stare at this and try to take it in. And I think that when we see the baby lying in the manger in this way, I think it would actually begin to overwhelm us. I think if we actually did what John's trying to have happen in our hearts, it would actually overturn our lives. It would shatter our philosophies. It would break into the highest parts of our, our minds and our hearts because God came to us. The word of God became one of us, became like us, so that he could die for us. Jesus is the only person in history who was born for the purpose of dying. Everyone else was born for the purpose of living, and sin has caused death to reign in their lives, but Jesus is the one person who's been born into the world for the express purpose of dying. And this is what John tells us at the beginning of this gospel, right? He says that this, this bright burning light of God that the Apostle Peter in another part of the Bible would say that one day will burn up the heavens and melt the skies when he returns. Like this is the glory of, of Jesus. He's saying this, this bright light, when he first came into the world, he came as a small flickering flame. A warm, soft, approachable glow, a baby lying in a manger, a, a man from Nazareth named Jesus, the eternal, creating, sustaining, glorious word of God became a human being. And no one has ever seen God. No one's, no one's known him. No one's understood him. He's too big for us. He's too amazing. He's too, he's too grand. <laughs> who has known God? Who has, who has seen him? Who has grasped him? The answer for all of human history was no one but then Jesus, the word made flesh, made him known. Like the, the one who holds the universe in the palm of his hand, he became small enough to fit in your hand. And the one who <laughs> spoke the stars into existence, he would become so like simple that he would have to learn how to speak. And despite all of this, the thing that John wants us to behold most is why. And it says that he did all of this so that one day this, this newly minted, finite, kind of small body that existed in space and time could actually be nailed to a cross and be lifted high into the air so that the Son of God born into the world could die for the sins of the world. Because the, the logos that exists out there 
the abstract, unknowable, ungraspable God can't die for the sins of the world. That when the word becomes flesh and becomes grabbable and knowable, you can actually take that body and you can kill it. And now the Bible says that this is why Jesus was born. Not to light the way for us to follow, not to give us this example, but actually so that he could literally be hung up on a cross to die. He came so that he could be a lamb who would be slain for the sins of the world. And not just for the sins of the world, but for your sins. Because the, every single person that walks in this room, like the reason that Christmas is such an important thing and the reason it should never become familiar for us is because for every single human being, God is a distant reality. Before we know Jesus, that's all he can be. Is this, it's a, we, we know there's God, he's out there. This world doesn't exist without the idea of some divine creator. Like we know that intuitively, everyone does. Like there's something out there that's not just the physical world and we know that, but it's distant and we can't get there. There's this chasm, there's this gap between us and God. And the Bible tells us that the reason there's this gap is because of sin. And yeah, we look at our world and we recognize this world is full of darkness. Our own hearts and lives are full of darkness. The Bible says it's because of our sin. It's crushing. We can't deal with it. We don't know what to do. And so Christmas is actually this crazy story of how Jesus came to deal with all of those things for us on our behalf. This tiny baby being born in the major would not just change the world, but he would change your life. And so what we're going to do to just end is you got one of these cups when you came in. And, you know, this is, this is such an interesting thing to do at Christmas time. I don't know if you feel that way, right? But it's like Christmas is this like joyous like celebration of Jesus Christ coming to earth. But I love how at the very beginning of John's gospel, he's like, yes, it is. We are gonna celebrate Jesus Christ. We're gonna celebrate his birth, the word becoming flesh. But the reason he came was so that he could die in our place. The reason he became physical was so that he could have death as part of his story. The reason he could come into this world was so that he could take your place in it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take communion together. And communion is basically just this way that the church remembers that the salvation that we talk about, this chasm that we had with God our Father, the reason that there's no gap anymore and we can actually know God is because Jesus Jesus Christ, he paid for that gap to be closed to zero with his body and blood. The reason that our lives can actually be lives filled with light and goodness instead of just lives of darkness is because Jesus Christ on the cross actually was covered in darkness. Like it's literally what happens in the Gospel of John. Like there's literally this darkness that covers over Jesus on the cross. Like it covers him so completely that actually in Luke it just says that the sun stopped shining over him. And that's not just abstractly for the world. That's for you. Like, that's for your story. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take communion together. And what we do when we take communion is we, we remember that this cost of our salvation, the light that's come into our lives, has come at the cost of Jesus' body being crushed on our behalf. So let's take this in remembrance of him. And we take the cup together. And what we do when we're taking the cup 
is we are actually confessing our sins to God. We're confessing to him that we actually do not have light in ourselves. We actually don't have a path home ourselves. We can't work hard enough. We actually needed the blood of the Son of God to be spilled out on our behalf in order for us to have a way home. And so when we take this, what we're doing, we're confessing that who we are, our need, and we're also confessing that we have a great Savior who's met our need. Let's take in remembrance of him. Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus, you're amazing, and God, I feel like every part of the beginning of the Gospel of John is is speaking to me in my story. Um, Jesus, before I knew you, all I knew was darkness. And I had no hope. And my life was one of deep darkness. But then you came for us. And God, you've changed our story. I mean, you've changed our lives. You've changed our world. And so Jesus, thanks that you're not distant. Thanks that you're not abstract. Thanks that you're not the unknown God that can't be seen or touched or felt. But you became human so that we could actually have a hand that we could hold, that we could actually know you intimately, God, and that you'd actually not just give us a path that if we walk well enough, we'd be able to get to you, but you came to us. And so, Jesus, we want to celebrate you. We want to celebrate that reality. You came for people like us, that you brought light into the darkness, that you became the lamb that we needed to be sacrificed for our sins so that we could one day come home. And so, Jesus, would you help us be people who are not just kind of lulled into apathy by the familiarity of a story that we know so well, but would we be shocked into just awe and wonder? Would we be able to behold you because of who you are and what you've really done? God, don't let us be people who are still asleep, but would you wake us up to the reality of these things so that we would be people that have our lungs filled with worship for who you are? Would you let us adore you, behold you, worship you today? Spirit of God, fill this place, fill our hearts, fill our lives with adoration and praise and glory for what you have done. Make us these people, Jesus. Awaken us. Help us sing to you today in your name.